and misfits. Do that. <laughs> 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 Gotta get in there when I can. Coming to you live from the Recycle Garage in beautiful and sunny Santa Cruz, California. Hey everyone. This is Liza, and I do not have stubby legs. This is well. This is John, and I have lots of stubby legs. <laughs> <laughs> You have lots of them. Lots of them. Lots of stubby. And I'll let you this, interpret that however you want. And this is Emma. And as we're talking about legs, when I lift them, they climb the stairs. And when I shave them, they ain't got hairs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I was just regretting joining the podcast until you said that. Okay, very good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like bath time at Emma's house is a bit like mowing the lawn. You know, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> we could build a new Emma out of the clippings from my legs. Oh, boy. Also joining us is Naked Jim. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Hope everybody's doing well. And everyone's favorite, Ginger with a cat. It's Bagel. Purr, purr, purr. <laughs> you guys, speaking of legs, I was watching a, not a great movie, but <clears throat> there was a funny scene in it where uh, Josh Duhamel, he, they were talking about regretful tattoos and he holds up his arm and he's got, you know, a hairy armpit and he's got one leg with high heels and fishnets going up his arm, the other leg going down his, his side. And it was, it was just aligned perfectly it was pretty funny very good <laughs> interesting i wouldn't wow. say see the movie just to see that but i was like oh that's a that's a a funny i know what my tattoo. next tattoo is <gasps> what that i'm gonna get on both arms. <laughs> 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 yeah it was it was not tasteful i've actually been starting to think about um getting my other sleeve done now that like I don't think tattoo parlors have opened yet, but things are rolling out slowly. It's got to be soon. I'm ready. I'm so but ready. But they have opened. My son got some work yesterday. He did? Tattoo parlors Santa open? Cruz. Ooh. Yeah. Got to go give them artists my money. That's what we got to do. I'm um, so much to talk about. What another great day in the garage. Oh, the weather. Glorious. This is why we live here. It was beautiful weather. Great day. We had um, people working on stuff. Brennan put on a new shock on his bike, on his uh, V-Strom 650. Said it completely changed the bike. He completely. And that was a good amount of money. I think he, he spent $650, which is about a third of what the whole bike cost him. Um, and he said, great investment. So just, you know, was that, it, was that used or new? Cause that even sounds kind of cheap. Uh, you know, it was an Olin's. It was brand new. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. So Good just upgrade. a reminder to people how important suspension is and you don't realize it until you, you upgrade it or fix it. And it's like, oh, well, changes you everything. Just, you just hold on there, Liza, because yeah. yeah, we all know that manufacturers crap out on suspension and upgrading a suspension is an amazing upgrade. Mm -hmm. But in Brent's case, 
the suspension, which on a V-Strom isn't bad from the factory, it isn't great, but it isn't bad. It was completely sacked out and blown. So the back of his bike pogoed up and down like right. a hooker's bed springs. So putting the Olins on it, it was not just a small upgrade. It was a big upgrade. It was the upgradiest. And and that's the thing. He said it was well worth the money. So just a reminder to people, if you're on the fence about spending that much money on a, on an upgrade like uh, you know suspension, you know it's it's a good place to spend the money. Um, also, we had a cool bike. Uh, Barry brought an interesting bike by the garage today. Emma, what did he bring by? He brought a Benelli Tornado six fifty, um, and I think early seventies vintage. Yeah, that sounds about. I right. say it's like 71, 70, 71. Oh, that was a clean bike. bike. Meaty. You see, the the Tornado, there was a ton of these things around at the time. You know, Laverda had a 650, Benelli had a 650, and they were all designed as competition for the Bonneville. But the reality was, in a lot of cases, they were a lot better. They were certainly um, more oil tight. Um, but, you know, the, um, the Benelli's problem was vibration always oh my god those things shook and you'd see the rubber mounting on everything to try and quell the vibration but a wonderful bike and it was so nice for him to bring it down just really clean restoration he did it in a very simple black and silver paint scheme he deviated from stock which i kind of agree with because when you see these bikes stock it's almost like benelli were embarrassed by the fuel tanks so they put lots of stripes on them in just really strange places. And it wasn't the best looking paint job. So he really improved it. Um, and just not not an elegant bike. Would you agree, Liza? No, it's, it's, I mean, classic. No, it, it's classy, but it's kind of very much of like, you know, the bulldog style. Yeah. You know, it was if it if it was a dog, it'd be kind of like a bulldog, kind of very haunchy and muscular and I, you know, I, I thought he I, I thought he looked great riding off on it though you know he had that kind of old-fashioned oiled leather jacket um yeah. you know exactly. and he i thought the bike fit him really well though i thought he looked pretty slick as he uh took on off suddenly it's 1970 again <laughs> well and and barry is somebody who um he has some very nice classic bikes and he has very nice modern bikes so he knows how to maintain them and how right. to ride them Right. And he likes his Italian stuff. Um, I think, is it all or just most of his collection is Italian? I think it might have uh, The Moto Marini. Yeah, yeah, Marini yeah I think so. And the Benelli and the Ducati. Yeah, and... I think so. Oh, John's got a dog. I just saw a dog on John's lap. What you kind did. Of dog? You just saw Jax. He's a, who knows, Chihuahua something else. Jack Russell, perhaps. Uh, all the perhaps Jack Russell. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He was a uh, he's a rescue. Okay. Sorry, I got, I get distracted. With yes, you do. Animal. I'm um, sorry. So just a great day, just helping people get stuff done. Um, I had to fix a leak on my bike, which turned into um, finding out one of the bolt holes was stripped on the slave cylinder, and then trying to get the right bolt, and then the head not fitting, and then. Cutting and, down a and, socket cap and just, but I got there. I got there. And you forgot about yeah. making me 
crawl through the dirt on my hands. Are you going to tell people all about that, darling? You know how sometimes bolts disappear? (laughs) I dropped one of the bolts. And the thing on my KTMs, they have star drive bolts. And I really wanted to reuse that um, so that it's just consistent. And I dropped one and it, uh, well, I had the bike on the lift and it just disappeared. So I did that thing where you just drop another one to see where it bounces <laughs> and it bounced underneath. I did not know that was a thing. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's what I do. When you lose something, drop another one, see where it goes. And so I dropped another one and it bounced underneath the lift and underneath the lift. Cause it's outside, but it's in a tent, but it's outside leaves have blown and gathered. I'm like, ah, crap. So I had to sift through the leaves and I'm pulling them out and sifting through them. Gone. Two bolts disappeared. Gone. I had Emma on the other side, Reaching under there, sifting through dirt and leaves, gone. Don't know where they went. Just disappeared. I don't know. I somebody should do like an extensive test on bounce tests on on fasteners and how far they can travel away from a <laughs> straight drop. You know? It's the chaos theory. It'll be. It's like like what's that guy in Jurassic Park about the water going off your hand? The, it will go a different way, guaranteed every time. <laughs> yeah, Basically. and further than you ever think possible. And, well, and they'll, they'll always land somewhere where you can't see them. Yeah, this is I know, true. I know, I know. But you the know, this is when that happens and it stays in the bike somewhere. Oh yeah, it just like, falls oh, down in the bike. You got a loose bolt somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, Ugh. whenever you're doing, the worst is if you've got the top end of the engine off. Oh yeah, and if there is a whiff of a possibility of a fraction of a chance that that bolt went into the top end of the engine. You just got to keep looking until you find the bolt, because if you can't find it, you got to pull your engine down. And it has happened to me. Yeah. me too. I've pulled the engine and the bolt's not in there, but guess what? I sleep well at night (laughs) (laughs) because you have, if you drop a bolt, down in the cam chain tunnel of an engine. I was going to say cam chain. That's where it goes. You have no idea the destruction it can cause. It's it's gruesome. Yeah. So, you know, well, I want to hear about, um, I want to get some ride reports because both Jim and John have done some really great rides. And interestingly enough, kind of similar to one another, but completely different in different states and not the same ride. But, um, both of you are getting more and more into adventure riding and Jim, you go off on your own. We've talked about this before, but at least you have your, what's it called again? The Inri? churro. I got a churro. What's that? No, yeah, the Garmin, Garmin Inreach mini Garmin Inreach mini. And you send me, I'm okay. Messages kind of, here's my location every day. I'm like, cool. So I kind of know that we did figure out like, Hey, we need to establish beforehand how many days you're going to be going because then comes the day I don't get the alert. I'm like, oh shit, who do I call? It's like, no, he's just driving home. <laughs> I always figure worst case scenario, someone knows where, where to look for the body, but we exactly. talked about that before. Exactly. <clears throat> but um, Jim, you went off and had a fun adventure and you're doing the kind of riding, both of you are doing some of the kind of riding. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So Jim, tell us where you went. 
Yeah. So um, I went down to the desert again because, you know, out here, I think like most places, the, the weather really dictates where you can go in the time of year. So this is the time of year where you head down to the desert typically. And um, or at least I do. And it's a beautiful time down there. Um, the, the flowers are just starting to bloom. So where I went, people may be familiar. This is in Southern California near a place called the Salton Sea. Yes. So this is, yeah, it's, I guess it's about... Yeah. Yeah, Salton Sea. It's funky. If you're not familiar with it, Google it. But a quick history. It's about two hours inland from San Diego in the middle of the desert. Um, and it's a low-lying area, a natural basin that over the years would flood, recede, flood, recede. And this is a large body of water. I thought it was kind of small. It is big. Well, it, so, it kind of comes and goes, doesn't it, Jim? You know, it has. And it has over time. They have Native, old, Native American uh, stories, etc., about you know, it being a, a full-fledged lake. So they've known over time it had filled because I think the Colorado River would mm -hmm. um, kind of overflow, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Men, man, there's a man-made issues. They messed it up, but then they realized don't do that anymore. But in the 50s, you could go there and they turned it into a resort. This was a period of time where it naturally mm -hmm. flooded. It was clean, fresh water. So you could go there and water ski. They had restaurants. They were building, you know, a town, towns yeah. around it laying road work. Um, not to get too far into that, but long story short, they also at the same time or right after discovered the land just south of the Salton Sea near El Centro was extremely fertile for agriculture. So they started a whole bunch of crops down there. Well, they did the crops, they did the fertilizer, the pesticides, that all naturally leaked into the lower basin of the Salton Sea and turned it into a toxic, uh, a toxic, <laughs> a toxic lake. You know, you can't be in it. It's uninhabitable. All the fish have died. So it smells horrible. There's a bunch of weird hippie shit out there. Ah! Um, but like, I, like I told somebody, if I want to go see that, I'll just go downtown Santa Cruz. I can see plenty of it. So it's basically so I, a ghost town now. More well, there's or less city out there, though. Yeah. Yeah. There's people that live out there. It's, it, there's, it, it's varied and funky, very much off the grid in places. Um, but there's still unbuilt neighborhoods where the the streets are super wide, Sunrise Drive, um, roads going off of it with no houses. So, you know, subdivisions ready to be built that everything stopped in its tracks once the lake turned toxic. Um, and apparently there's there's all sorts of stuff in the lake, military secrets, planes, <laughs> people. That's a whole other story. But anyway, I didn't go there. I went just east of Salton or west of Salton Sea in an area called Acatillo Wells, and the uh, Anza Borrego uh, State Wilderness, I think it's called that, and a patchwork of BLM land. So um, it was desert. And like I said, it was a patchwork of BLM, state forest, and then an actual SRVA, so a state recreation vehicle area at Acatillo Wells, um, which was interesting. So, but this is a huge, vast area. Even though you cannot, you know, be very far from a road or some other people, it can still seem like you're, you're miles and miles away. Um, yeah, so drove down, didn't really know where I was going, so just kind of Googled it, took my best shot, looked at some forms, camped off of a State Route 22, which was a dispersed camping on BLM land. So it just kind of turned off the side of a road. Yeah. You sent me video of your tent from the inside. Oh, God. Yeah. It did not look comfortable. My tent's bomb. Uh, my campsite was bomb. Um, this is where I'm like, go take chances, go explore. So I'll tell you about the tent in a second. <laughs> yeah. So pulled off the road, found a nice little nestled in some dunes, beautiful view. I thought protected from the wind, not desert. <laughs> um, but it was lovely. And there were a couple of other people in the area, which I was kind of wanting being the first time I had been there and I didn't know what I was in store for. 
you know, and it's the desert. Um, uh, but, but again, it was beautiful. Um, you know, the other nice thing that I, I feel much more comfortable now is I'm getting my things more dialed in, like, you know, my kit, so to speak, you know, my gear, I'm, I'm comfortable in my gear. Like I wear straight up dirt bike gear. So, you know, Alpine tech seven boots. Um, I wear over the boot climb pants, depending on the weather, either the vented ones or, you know, waterproof, um, an armored jacket, a dirt bike helmet. And I just got picked up some new goggles. So I dropped a hundred bucks on goggles. Yeah. Could have been some of the best hundred dollars I've ever spent. Um, so they're hundred percent goggles and they have high contrast lenses, right? hundred percent goggles. Type- yeah, you know what the brand? Not, oh, 100%. <laughs> oh, no, you know, my okay. goggles anyway, are like 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the modular. Um, you know, cuz where I get cuz you're you know you're out all day in the sun and the, the, the light is out on the flats the right word, but you can really not see things sometimes. And times I'm all, almost had problems was not seeing something, you know, cuz you really can't. You can try to lose speed and stuff. But anyway, and the goggles were that was a nice kind of a uh a thing I did spoiled myself, so to speak. Yeah. So that was cool. But, you know, I've got like, you know, the way I got the bike sorted out. So I had the 250 uh, L rally, which I'm liking more and more now. I used to, you know, always kind of wind. It was underpowered and heavy, which it is. But I tell you what, that bike does everything I ask of it. Um, and this was a sandy trip. Um, the most kind of unrelenting sand I'd been in. And there's two terrains I hate, mud and sand. For the reason yeah. that it's unpredictable yeah um it and is. you seem um, to love it well i love riding dirt bikes and i love exploring and where yeah. can you go now is the desert but i do love the desert and not to get all metaphysical but it's cool out there i mean there's some places that are incredibly spiritual at least feel that way and there's mm-hmm. times where you're looking at these ledges or these rock cliffs this area i was at it was like desert but also had uh, a lot of washes and ravines and gullies and slot canyons. So you could be, you know, in these little nooks and crannies and see amazing things. But then you really realize you're like a, a speck of stardust in a nano flash of time in this desert that's been here since time began and will continue to be. Mm-hmm. And really doesn't give, give a you know what about you. Like if you have a bad day or don't, or if you die or you don't, it's kind of like the ocean. It really doesn't care about, you know, you're very minuscule out there and you certainly feel it. Um, but talking about the sand, you know, I, I'm learning to love the sand more as I get a little more confident. Um, but it was funny when I, where I ended up was on a trail called, I think it was a Royal Saluda. I didn't know what Saluda mean. I know it was like Creek or whatever, dry Creek. So Saluda turns out to be like a welcome, like a greeting. And it was perfectly named because about the first 150 to 200 yards leaving and coming back to the campsite was just deep as sand as you can imagine, uh. you know, and so that's how you start and stop. But I, I come to appreciate it because I figured, okay, that was going to be my teacher for the week was Arroyo Saluda was going to, you know, greet me every day when I got to start. It's just, you're in the sand. Right so do the you game. just hammer through? Is that what you do? Um, you know, you do in the beginning, you know, when, when I first started, I got there on a Thursday and I just kind of like, I want to get my sand legs under me. Right. So I'll do an easy ride. This is maybe one or two in the afternoon. The weather wasn't terrible. It was a little chance of rain, kind of gusty. And I'm like, oh, I'll just get, you know, used to it. But immediately and you're in deep sand. So you're grabbing the handlebars way too hard and kind of freaking out, just trying to keep from crashing. But then it all came back fairly quickly. Um, the, the training seeing, from Jocelyn, did that come yeah, into play? Yeah, that's what I always get back to yeah. is Jocelyn. And, you know, I'm having, you know, those moments now where, and, and the train was incredibly varied. So some of the desert riding, you can be in, say, a sandy wash or, you know, quote, a road 
where it's really sandy, but then you can bail out into the open desert and it's kind of firm and you can go in between the bushes and rocks. Well, here you are down in creek beds, basically a, a dry creek or river bed, anywhere from 10 to 15 feet wide to 100 feet wide. Um, you know, and these still carry water at, at, at different periods, but you couldn't just bail out of a wash. So if you were in a wash on a, a trail that was all sand, your only option was to keep going through the sand. Um, but as the, the training came back and I relaxed my arms, got my weight, the biggest thing is relaxing your arms and keeping your eyes up. And as long as you stay steady on the throttle, you know, the bike will respond. Um, but, you know, as soon as you feel comfortable, something crazy happens and et cetera. Uh, but it's the exploring. I mean, you get on some of this BLM land and it just goes forever. Um, but again, the, that didn't reach many. I, I'm glad I have it. Um, like I said, I might my kit pretty well sorted out, you know, like. I kind of, I was thinking about what I take with me. So the way, if, if you're curious, the way I, I kind of, what I bring with me to kind of survive basically is I've got, um, I have the giant loop Mojave uh, saddlebags, mm -hmm. which are great. Cause this is a 250. It's my Africa single, right? This is a 250 dirt bike, but the Africa Mojave bags are great. Um, they've held up well. I've done gosh, over 3000 miles with them now, dual sport miles. Um, and in one side, Let's see, one side I'll typically do water, like a liter bottle of water for backup, a battery booster, um, and then some food, typically trail mix and a bunch of bars. And then the other side are all my uh, change of tire tools. So tire yeah. tools, tube. I got the little compressed air canisters, the CO2 canisters. I tried them out. They work dynamite. Right. So basically, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then so only in the backpack, all I'm carrying is, well, it's three liters of water. And then I mix in an emergency and a Pedialyte, you know, it's for electrolytes. Because the desert will kick your ass no time at all um, if you're dehydrated or don't have calories. I'm sure John can attest to that. Um, but then I keep a hat with me, some walking shoes. Cause I try not to go more than 10 miles from wherever I'm camping at. Mm. Cause you might have to walk back and I, you know, you can't walk right. and walking back in dirt bike boots. Sounds like it would suck. You know, so I carry shoes. I carry a compass with me all the time and a, actually a whistle, an emergency whistle, you know, those little super well whistles. Um, yeah. And then a uh, toe straps. And that's kind of my, my kit for, uh, that I keep with me pretty much all the time. Um, and it's worked out pretty well, you know, and I keep a tool roll with me, uh, weighs about eight pounds, the tools you'd usually have, but you know, one of the great things I have is steel stick in there. Um, you know, I think a couple of times now we've broken side case covers mm -hmm. in the field with steel stick. Um, so that, I mean, aside from all the other obvious stuff, but, um, the stuff I use the most is just in the field stuff, zip ties, safety wire, steel stick, a screwdriver and an eight and a 10 socket. Um, but, you know, I've found that those are the stuff, you know, I don't use it all, all the time. Well, the water you do and the gas, yeah. but um, it's all the stuff that you might need. Um, you're and you're it, like it just gives you all this confidence. Yeah. You're like a Boy Scout. Like you're just loving this, like, uh, like working out all the things and, and being able to survive. You're like, you know, I can survive and explore and like yeah. do all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, it is. And that's what I enjoy about it, is yeah. the exploring. I like you know, and, and every day I kind of go, I mean, I had to kind of go in and out Arroyo Saludo a lot of the way, you know, to get to other places. Um, but I like to always like to go new places. Um, it's really fun. And and you get out to these areas and it's the little playgrounds are just unlimited. Everything from melted. I mean, it's like a Mars landscape. Um, it really is just wild. So does it get windy there? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you hear this in other places too, but the desert is just incredibly unpredictable. And yeah, in two trips, it's almost destroyed two tents. So the me and Mike were in Johnson Valley not long ago when he bailed, destroyed my tent there, literally crushed it. 
And the tent I have now is quite comfortable. So I have a Tacoma and I got a tent built for the Tacoma, right? It sits in the bed. I love it. It's great. The wind started picking up. I think it was Friday night. And I was like, oh, this may not. Oh, I'm not sure about this because I know how the wind can blow. So I started throwing straps over it. You guys have seen like videos of like the hikers doing Mount Everest when they're like up in those tents and it's just like and the whole thing is just oh, yeah. vibrating. That's what it looked like. He took video from the inside. I'm like, how'd you get to Mount Everest? That's exactly oh what it looked like. If you had seen my tent, so by the time night fell, I had like every strap and extra piece of shoestring wrapped around it. My <laughs> tent looked like you gave a five-year-old uh, a thing of twine to wrap a gift with. That's what it was like, just bundled up. Because if not, and there's no doubt, it would have, it would have, it would have been just been destroyed by it's, the wind. It's wow. crazy. The wind comes through the desert. You know, when I did Babes Ride Out a few years ago down in Joshua Tree. It is a beautiful evening, and you go to bed, and then right around midnight, this this zephyr. I don't know what you call it, a zephyr or a sirocco comes up. Quite the zephyr, for sure. And it blows your bloody tent down. You know? It oh, just yeah. flattens everything. Oh, and I was making... Bikes flying and tents <laughs> yeah. flying. And middle it's of the night. Nuts. I, yeah. I was making breakfast Saturday morning. I'm at my little Coleman stove. I've got my little table up against the truck, trying to block any when I can with another thing blocking it. And I'm cooking my little eggs for like a, a breakfast burrito. And I'm just watching sand blow into the pan <laughs> as I'm oh. cooking the eggs. Oh. I just resolved myself. I'm like, I got, I just got to eat this and get on the bike and get out of here. But it was just sand everywhere. But you know what? I sand and eggs. I, you know what? I, I don't mind that stuff. It is. It's just kind of fun in a weird way. Uh, like, like he's like, Liza said, it's the, the adventure, um, yeah. that I like, and I'll say, you know, and the, the little bike lets me do it. I couldn't do this stuff on the Africa twin. No, right. no way. Um, I mean like a Husky 350 might be nice, but I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, well, a story too, about why I'm glad I have a Honda. Yeah. Um, so part of the trip, the reason I went down there was to see, you know, Jake, my daughter, she was, uh, in an air show down at the Naval air station at El Centro. Um, but I wasn't sure if I was going to get to see her or not. Um, Anyway, I didn't think I was going to get to because the base was closed. It was actually a practice public air show or something like they called it. Basically an air show, but you couldn't go on base. Um, and then I didn't think I was going to get to see her. So I was bummed. So I went riding anyway. Anyway, I checked my phone at one o'clock. Great cell reception these days, by the way. And I get a thing from Jake. Where are you? So I call her. I'm like, I'm in the middle of the desert. You know, what's up? She <laughs> goes, hey, I can see you. They're, they're going to let us off base. Um, so I was like stoked. So I you know, jammed back to the tent. I took all most of the stuff out of the backpack in my, that I needed because um, I had gifts for her and her crew uh, that I had to put in the backpack so I couldn't carry everything. So I took the dual sport, the 250 down to El Centro, which is about a little over an hour ride, um, you know, through the desert to this agricultural town with a naval air station, et cetera. Um, the, 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 the part that you remember is, well, I saw Jake and her whole team. It was a lot of fun. We had dinner. Um, got to see some of the air show, the Blue Angels from the side of the road, just like right over top. It was really awesome. Um, but on the way back, I'm still in my dirt bike gear. It's dark. It's like 830 at night, starting to get cold. And I had to ride back, you know, whatever, 60, 70 miles on the 250 on a highway. So I'm <laughs> drifting behind trucks. I'm like freezing my ass off. And I know we've <laughs> all been there where you're just like, oh, God, oh, God. And at that moment, I said, this is why I bought a Honda. Because it's the middle of the night. I'm like, you know, 30 miles from Mexico. It's just middle of nowhere. Um, 
and I was really glad to be on a, a Honda. I got to say, it's um, going to get you I, there. And I, well, I sure as hell hope mm-hmm. so because I was, you know, I was working that bike all weekend. But I tell you what, it it uh, strong the entire way. It didn't have an issue uh, except when I stopped it at the border. It wasn't the border, but they have immigration stops, mm-hmm. and these guys are all you know wearing the tactical gear and everything else. And I've been drifting behind a big rig um, <laughs> for like forty five minutes, just frozen. And I've, they finally get to the lights and they didn't see me. I was kind of hidden by the truck and the guy's like, Hey, whoa, what are you, what are you doing? And he just asked if I was a citizen. Yeah. And you know, where are you coming from? And I was so cold. I couldn't really speak. I just kind of started <laughs> gesturing. <laughs> and he's like, oh, cool, just go, just go. But it was one of those cool feelings where I rode, God, I think I rode three, was it 130, hundred, I don't know, 150 miles that day. Some crazy amount of miles. And it was a great day, but by the time I got back to the tent, I was just done, utterly exhausted, cold, tired. But it's that really satisfying feeling of, um, you know, of having of having a full day. You're living life, dude. You're living life. Yeah, I'm blessed. I'm super thankful. I you know, it. I got a job and my health and et cetera, where I can able to do this stuff. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I feel blessed, but it, it's it's been a hoot. Um, if, if people are interested, look on my Instagram. It's Jim, what is it? Jimbo, J-I-M-B-O, the number two and the letter U. Mm-hmm. Is my Instagram? Jimbo I post a to bunch of pictures you. there. Jimbo to you. Um, uh, it's fascinating. Jimbo to you. <laughs> yeah, but the only thing I think is what's cooler than Southern California is where John was at. He was in some. Cool yeah, spots. I want to hear about John about your trip. You went to my yeah, my so, birthland. I know. I bowed down to you when I was there <laughs> <laughs> to your people. Um, yeah, so I've been. Um, it's my second time going out and riding with uh, <laughs> with. Um, uh, this YouTuber called Everride. You should check out his channel. His channel, if, mm-hmm. uh, if you get some time. And but let me and actually let me shout out to. There's one of the guys that was riding with us. His name is Brent, and he's a listener hey. um, to the podcast. So Brent, what's up? It's fun riding with you. Um, so it's fun. It's fun to see uh, and meet other other listeners out there. Yeah, and stuff like this. So we were um, we were in Saint George, and what um, Everride takes us to is we we ride in the borderlands between. Utah and Arizona. So it's not up in like Zion. It's like in the, in the badland deserts down mm-hmm. below. And it is, you know, it's still phenomenal. I mean, anything in that area is just, John is just world-class. You're, yep. You're thumping on the table. Sorry. It's coming I through. Do that <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, but, but, um, it was, it was the uh, I don't St. George has never had two consecutive days of snow. The two days I was there. Yeah, so you're uh southern southern Utah, um right next to like Arizona, Nevada. It's very close and beautiful desert there. Beautiful. I mean kind of like what Jim was describing where you have yeah. these canyons and gorges and all sorts of beautiful desert. But it can get Utah. cold. Utah's next level. It is. You, I, we were in Kodachrome and some of those areas near uh, Bryce Canyon. Mm-hmm. It is unreal. Yeah, we were there. Uh, Bryce Canyon was seven degrees. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. it was. Uh, it was in the thirties uh, and snowy. Is not what I expected. So the first day we went out in the area that um, that we had chosen to go ride in, and, and we did some drills and stuff, and then we rode up on top of some mesas. Um, but coming back, um, we caught some mud. Liza's favorite, <laughs> and it was the worst mud I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> it's just like that. It was that clay mud that sticks uh, on everything and just doesn't go anywhere. And then it makes your tires slick. It does. And see, and I'm on, uh, I was on the KLR. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was on more like dirt bikes. So, and, uh, 
and I, you know, this is the first time it's ever happened to me where there's so much mud that went up into the wheels that actually I couldn't get it to move anymore. It just stopped. It was just like cemented. <laughs> it was, your wheel to the fender. It, it was exactly that. So one of the other kids that was there, young guys that was there, really another really great rider um, named Gabe. He he's about 100 pounds lighter than me, so he was able to get it moving. Um, but it was so we all just drove right to a car wash and had to spray all the bikes down because it, it was just caked with this concrete mud that was horrible. So we're thinking like, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? Because none of us wanted to go back out to that mess. Um, and uh, we decided to throw the bikes in the back of everybody's trucks. And we went down to the lower desert by Mesquite, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nevada. And uh, so we went out there and it was absolutely glorious. So we were actually up right against or right in the the Bundy land. If you remember those guys that were doing the standoff with the oh yeah um with the government out there, the ranchers. So oh, we were yeah. on their land. And mm. uh which is all it's all BLM land, so it's all legal, mm-hmm. but you know, um but it was a trip to be up there. But we but it was truly like uh Jim was saying is truly exploring and uh what <laughs> we came up to now I'm I'm an okay rider. These guys were great riders. So, and, but we didn't know it had some of the real dirt bike guys leading the way I was coming in the back and uh, sweeping and uh, came up to one hill. And, and the guy in front of me was on a, on a brand new Husky a a 501. And uh, he went down this hill and, and lost it and just chucked it off into the side. And it was, it was like the most, and he, and he crawls out and just lays on the ground. And I'm like, Oh God, here we go. So, but he ended up being okay. But it was like I am not riding this KLR down that hill again after that seeing that situation. So, I was so one of the other guys jumped on it and drew it down, which was again lighter than me. But John, you're still thumping. Yep, you are an active somebody who like gestures and I'm Italian. What do you? I want? know, but your microphone is on the computer, okay. which is on the I'm table. Gonna, so I'm anything you this. touch is coming through. I know so. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Gesture in the air. <laughs> so Sorry, you uh, so no mud so you go south and so what's the kind of terrain you're riding in it's all um single and, and dual track uh up and it's super rocky with pretty much all loose rock and baby heads uh the whole time so it's super intense riding and and you know it's a um it's one of the, it's probably the most challenging riding i've ever done and, you know, I didn't grow up in an area that had a lot of hills and rocks. Um, so this is all new to me. But, uh, boy, it's, uh, it is challenging. And it is, it's one of those things where I'm right. I'm doing it. And I'm like, why, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> but then at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, it's, been, it's been great. And I've, I've really appreciated, you know, the dirt thing. I, I love riding on the street. And I've been riding on the street for most of my life. But um, it's kind of fun to do something completely different and doesn't have cars. And, and just, you know, strengthens my riding and it's just a whole different vibe. And it's been really kind of life-giving for me. And, and I echo what Jim said, the desert is special. There's just something really special about being out there and, and you feel close to the universe or to God or whatever you want to call it. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was great. You know, so. I, I, I'm curious, John, some of the appeal I think as I'm listening to you talk, um, definitely the part about nature and whatever you conceive as God is, I think, in places like that. But it's also, it's kind of like being a kid again. You know, being on a dirt bike, it reminds me of being like on a little BMX bike as a kid where you have this freedom to go off the road and go there. Yeah. Or I can go over here and I can explore. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that's yeah. a big draw for this kind of adventure riding. It, it does. I feel like it keeps me young. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the greatest things I've done recently. So I'm so glad I got into it. 
Except that you have to keep getting more and more bikes. <laughs> hey, Jim. Well, is there ever enough? <laughs> just so you know, I once again offered up your 225. I thought, because he's also wanting to get a smaller bike for doing like desert riding and not sure if a 250 is going to be not enough power. And I said, why don't we take the 225 out mm-hmm. to Hollister sometime and sure. ride it around? Because that'll give you an idea. And it's a smaller dirt bike. So it's a, so lightweight, easy to handle, and you can tell if it's going to be underpowered or not. Yeah, totally. I think it's a great bike to take out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's let's do that sometime. Welcome to it. Well, John, do you have any other um, areas you're planning on going uh, on an adventure yet? Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm looking at going on the Carrizo Plane trip with Matt from Breaking Away Adventures. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to go help him out and do some catering for him over there. Uh, and then... Uh, I'm looking at doing Lost Coast, uh, which is up in kind of far northern California, um, mm-hmm. up in the uh, up around the the giant redwoods. I'm going to do that in June. So if anybody wants to go, uh, you can you can go through uh, my website at uh, BigThumpers.com, and uh, the information is there and links to where where you can sign up. And then I'm lo- I really want to do Mojave Road, so I've got a tentative plan to do Mojave Road. I did it in my truck last last couple few months ago. So Mojave Road is an area between Laughlin, Nevada, and Baker, California, and mm-hmm. it was the um, the trail that Native Americans used, and then later pioneers used it to cross the Mojave Desert. Mm-hmm. And there's all kind of crazy, funky stuff out there. And it's the riding is not super technical, but it's um, it's about 120 miles of dirt roads. And Ooh, uh, that sounds like something it, I would like to do. It is a great. Uh, it, so I, was, I scouted it a couple months ago, and we're going to do it in uh, probably September, October. So, and that's yeah, the great thing uh, about dirt bikes. If if it's not technical, it's just if it's just kind of flat and loose, just go faster. It gets real exciting <laughs> real fast. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you gotta learn about. An hour on the dirt. <laughs> thing about dirt bikes is if you get in trouble, just gas it. <laughs> so, thank and God, you can straighten yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mentioned one other thing. Yeah, I know. It's unfortunate. The only bummer is if you're already doing 45 miles an hour and you're coming up onto something that you got to give it more gas, <laughs> you're like, oh shit, I'm going to be going 65 <laughs> miles an hour in that stuff that I hate. You know, really well, but, Emma you know, would say, give it the beans, baby. Oh, dude, you have no choice. No, Emma, you are you muted. Can, you, can, you can always stop. Okay. Stopping is a choice in the sand, it's just it comes with its own set of consequences. <laughs> um, I finally figured out my getting out of the deep sand technique on the little bikes. I'm always afraid I'm going to smoke the clutch. So now I just rev it really high, but I stand up. So I have no weight on the seat, rev it high, dump the clutch, get the rear wheel, just spinning in the sand. And then I jump up on the rear pegs and then it buries the front, the rear wheel. And off we go. You just hope there's nothing scary in front of you because you were going straight into whatever it is. Nice. So I was, uh, yeah, we were finishing up the day. So, and I actually, I felt like I was, okay, I did a little better this time. So last time I rode with these guys, I fell probably 20 times this time. I fell like three or four. So I'm like, Hey, there's improvement. So we're right. We're rolling up to the trucks <laughs> at the end of the day. And sure enough, we stopped behind the trucks. I could, the, there was an indentation in the ground. And I went boop right over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Oh Lord. Oh, well, at least it was the end. It's Finished with a flourish. Always the easiest. It's always the easiest. Oh, I'll tell you another another quick thing on my my latest little tangents these days is stop and talk to people. Yes. 
Um, so again, if, and if you're ever somewhere, you don't know, and there's Rangers talk to park rangers. I spent about 15 minutes talking to a guy cause he was kind of bored and et cetera. And he turned me onto some cool roads with cool flora and, uh, some water, some interesting stuff like that. Um, and told me not how to, you know, some other ways not to die. Um, <laughs> so stop good. and talk to park rangers. Well, I did, I didn't know this. So, you know, there's flash floods in the desert, right? Just like yeah. in Utah. Yeah. In a lot of places, but you think, oh, there's rain, you know, 10 miles away. It's going to happen. I knew that was potential. Little did I know, and you guys probably do snow melt can break free. Oh yeah. So there can be rain nowhere, but a big old chunk of snow breaks free in the mountains at 10,000 feet, you know, miles above. And that will come down. And he said, I've seen it bury cars. I'm like, wow. get out of town. Yeah. So I I'm like, good to know. Might die that way too. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, stop and talk to people. I always it always seems to be be interesting. Well, I'm jealous you guys are getting out there. I need to get out there and do some more writing. I think John, maybe next week. Um, uh, Jim, if you're interested, we we're talking about going up to uh, Buzzards and playing and exploring up there again. Sure. Up here in the mountains, if it's not I'm too around. muddy. Charlie was there, I think, yesterday. He said it was muddy, so <clears throat> we'll see. It's still it's a good place to just to practice technique and explore mm-hmm. here locally. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted to get to our topic for the day, and this comes about where was I? I watch a lot of you know YouTube cha- shows and Netflix shows, and um, I I've been watching a lot of these like car restoration shows, you know, where they buy a junker and fix it up. And um, they had bought a car that had been in a fire, and then they you know fixed it up, swapped out the fenders and this and that, the engine. And it reminded me of when we had all the fires here, there were a lot of people whose bikes burned up. And I've even seen people posting stuff on forums saying like, hey, guys, what do you think? Can you think I can restore this? Do I just need to get a new tank and new wiring? You know, that kind of stuff. And Emma had uh, taught us that, no, it's not that easy. Um, So I wanted to talk to her about project bikes because we all love project bikes, right? But there's different types of, we're calling it uh, resurrecting. Emma, don't forget to unmute. Um, There's resurrecting a bike. There's restoration, preservation, customization, and maybe even just rejuvenation. And there's a difference between them all. And when you have a project, first of all, you have to know kind of what your angle is. And Bagel, I'm sure this is exactly the same in the scooter world too. This really applies to any any vehicle you have to know what your which path you're taking but also there has to be a cutoff point of something is not right salvageable and we, i wanted to find out like when somebody's had a bike that's been in a fire can you explain why that's not a good candidate what you, you just hang on there like <laughs> you okay. just hang on there you just <laughs> hang on there what I would like to do is is actually go through the various definitions. Yes. So so people are clear what we're talking about. And what I'm going to do is I'll start at the top and work my way down. Okay. So, Bagel, feel free to jump in because I know you do this shit with scooters exactly the same as I do with bikes. So let's start at the top with restoration. Mm-hmm. Now, restoration in itself has got very, very different levels. I mean, you've, you've – you're, the highest is like a hundred point restoration, concourse restoration, which is where every nut, bolt, screw, plastic piece label is exactly as it left the factory 
1961. And there are people who voraciously eat this stuff up. But generally, restoration, we'll, we'll paint with a slightly broader paintbrush because I don't want to spend all night on this. Restoration is where you, you bring the bike back to give or take new condition. Okay? That's the top one. Next one down is preservation. And preservation is you end up still with a very, very nice vehicle. But you keep as much of the original parts as humanely possible. Now, a preserved vehicle mechanically should be perfect. It should be safe. It should operate as well as it did when it was new, perhaps better. Um, it's going to have patina. And people like a lot of patina on their vehicles. You know, the, the favorite thing <laughs> is it took, it took 50 years to get this way. Why wipe it out by restoring it and you know this there's quite a bit of competition between the restoration guys and the preservation guys mm -hmm. um you know in the 21st century when i first started going to pebble beach back in the 90s it was all about restoration and it was getting that 1928 duesenberg to the, the absolute pinnacle of condition and every nut and bolt was finished to the nth degree in recent years in the past 10 or 15 years you know the preservation class has been getting more and more and more interesting mm -hmm. and it's getting broader and so it is with the bikes you know the interesting bikes to me now are the preserved ones so that's our next down preservation and because you're talking like the original paint that came off the, the factory not, not new paint Right, And also, I'd like to make a note, too, that, that preservation also includes preserving the history of the bike. So if there are yes, modifications right. that were made later to the bike, especially right. if it's a famous bike, you want to preserve those as, as a, the course of history mm -hmm. of that vehicle. Right. And that's a very good point that Bagel brings out. If you're doing a restoration, particularly a concourse, it has to be a snapshot in time. So let's say I've got you know, a 1972 Triumph Trident on my bench. A concourse restoration on that bike would be if I went back to the Triumph factory in 1972 and plucked a machine off the production line, that's what it would be. Preservation is anybody who bolted period accessories on it, if they were of the time and in keeping with the period of the bike, that's fine. Or even if they appeared later, it's all about the history of the bike itself. You know, vehicles have two histories. If we take, say, a Norton Commando, anyone can look up the, the history of a Norton Commando. You know, it's 1968 to 1975, blah, 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 blah. And that is the history of the Norton Commando. But then you get into the history of that Norton Commando that was sold brand new in Berkeley and it was bought by, you know, an UC Berkeley professor and then written off and then built up again and raced at Laguna Sacra and blah, blah, blah. It has blah, a blah. story. It has a story. Yeah. So preservation would be keeping elements of that story in. Um, resurrection is yeah. literally taking the bike, doing the absolute minimum to make it so you can ride it 
I'm writing it. That's been my MO. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's been my MO. <laughs> exactly. And Resurrection is, is, I would say out of all of them, it's certainly the most valid. I mean, there is a lot to be said for just Resurrection. Yeah. Um, and then we get into um, customization. And customization is like your crazy toothless uncle from Alabama, <laughs> you know, on the family tree. <laughs> and you can go as crazy as you want. Now, I've done many, many customs on bikes where, let's say, I bought a bike that was too destroyed through, cra through a crash or through some other cataclysmic event that it simply can't be built back to its original state. So you build it in a customized state. You know, back when I was doing it more often, it was all about choppers. Now it's more all about cafe racers. You know, and the reason why I don't ju jump up and down on my desk and smash up the furniture when people talk about cafe racers is everyone's got this idea that they're chopping up good bikes and gnashing their teeth over it. But the reality is, a lot of these guys are chopping up crashed bikes mm -hmm. or rusted out bikes, and they're bringing new life to things that simply wouldn't have a life elsewhere. So customization's valid too. It's the ultimate form of expression. And I would you know, like to add that another offshoot of that is vintage customization. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because like on my cafe racer that I built, I sought out vintage um, uh, seat and, you know, the – I vintage parts to put on it that would have been put on in the seventies. And that's something like on Jim's um, ascot. I'd love to see him use, reuse that square headlight and the square and, gauges and, because it's period. Correct. And you've almost got one foot in customization and one foot in preservation. Yeah. You yeah. know, you're kind of straddling these, these are not completely firm concepts or ideas. There's a lot of crossover between them, mm -hmm. but we get the ideas. So there you go. There's, there's kind of very broadly, those are the four that we're going to talk about right now. So now back, everybody mightily. Now back to the question, like yes. when is something not resurrectable, like something that's been in a fire, why should you not? resurrect that well I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the one bikes i won't touch and believe me i've brought back some absolute horror stories i mean i take it as a personal challenge if somebody says i've got a bsa that's been lying in the mm -hmm. bottom of my garden pond for 20 years <laughs> i make it a personal challenge to bring that back but i won't touch a bike that's been in a fire because it's simply not worth it. Unless I have access to the temperatures involved. Yeah. Because you simply don't know how that frame's going to behave. And that's your life. Right. Because the temperatures can can change the metallurgy of the frame and all the metal work on that bike mm -hmm. and weaken it to the point where it could it could be dangerous to ride, even if you were able to get it running again. Right. If we go back to British bikes, because you know, you you all know how how does Emma feel about British bikes? Oh, you detest them. 
I have it tattooed. Damn those Lucas Electrics. Damn Damn those limeys. So if you go back to the old, old British bikes, British frames, you'd have something like the headstock where the triple trees bolt on. That's a cast piece with lugs that come off it. And then the frame itself is a tube. It pushes onto a lug. And at the factory, you've got the master brazer, and he's feeding the, the brass in, the molten brass, and his apprentice is throwing the flux on that makes it flow into the joint. And it makes for a very strong joint. I want that job. Master brazer? Well, brazer? Yeah. yeah. Get master braids all day long. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're close now, Liza. <laughs> well, she does have she does have fluffy on the resume. I you're, you're, only that, you're only that far away now. You know, you're just dealing with a couple of letters. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but so let's get back to the fire. Yeah. The joint for the frame was made with heat, and it got its strength from heat. So if you reheat it, especially to the kind of temperatures that you see in a wildfire, you know, you don't know that brass might have flown out of that joint. The brass itself may have become aerated and there's no strength left. And believe me, if you're riding down the road on your Triumph and you're doing like 80 miles an hour and the frame falls apart and the engine falls on the road, there's not a good state of affairs. So... <laughs> um, and even the Japanese bikes with a welded frame, you want to change the property of metal. Yeah, hate it. Yep. And it actually, it changes the metal. It changes the way the metal behaves. You know, you, you heat it up and quench it and you anneal it and it makes it more brittle. You, you heat it up and do a long, slow cool off and you harden it. And no, it's just, it's, it, if you've got a bike that's been in a major fire and I'm not talking about an electrical fire where you set your genitalia on fire (laughs) or even a bit of gasoline. Yeah. Or even a gas tank fire where, you know, the fuel tank goes up and the bike remains unscathed. I'm talking about big basin fire. If your house burns down and your bike's in it, you're going to say goodbye to your bike too, as well as your house. Yep. Just that's it. And I know it's heartbreaking, but it's time to say goodbye. You know, funnily enough, um, we've got up at the Talbot Museum, we've got a Harley Electroglide that was in um, a fire. Mm -hmm. And it is just horrendous to see what fires do. And then he, he also has that BMW that the fire came through and the guy buried it. Yes. Get out. Really? Yeah. Yes. Buried it and then dug it up oh, afterwards. Sa- saved wow. it. Yeah. Awesome. Now, wasn't there also uh, the, uh, the, there was a chopper that was That's, in a fire, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fire is devastating. So, if your bike's been in a fire, if you get offered a bike that's been in a fire, just walk away. Yeah, but chopper's okay because, I mean, you can't make it any worse. <laughs> <laughs> any more unsafe. Uh, until I mean, until your, <laughs> your frame bends and you hit a bump. <laughs> I don't think that's no. I don't think that's very kind to chopper owners. <laughs> Jim, you, you got something? 
Yeah, I, got a diff- I want to ask a question in a different way because yes. I think we've seen them. I know, Liza, we've picked up a scooter this way before, et cetera. But, Emma, like when you walk to, say, a barn find, just for a broad definition, but you go into someone's garden, you look in the back, and there's that old bike sitting there. Yes. You know, it may have, it may have some rust and patina, put it nicely, yes. but it's been there for a while. What yes. are the telltale signs you might see where you straight up don't want to touch it? Oh, no. I'll bring anything. Like if the engine doesn't turn. Right, doesn't like matter. get a. Oh, it doesn't matter. It really, so matter. like if. But mm-hmm. bear in mind. Because it's going to cost money, right? Like a seventies, you know, Japanese, you know, whatever four hundred. There's the rub, Jim. That's you know, the, money. the only limiting factor. Now, obviously, if I'm doing it for myself, I don't have to pay anybody. The only decision I need to make is. What am I going to do with it? Is it going to be restoration, preservation, resurrection, or customization? That's the only choices that I've got to make. Now, if we're talking with somebody else's bike, you say, okay, this bike has a value of X. So let's say you have a bike with a value of $2,000. Are you very attached to this bike? No. Okay. Well, that's our line. That's $2,000. If we can bring this bike back for $1,500, $1,600, you are onto a winner because even if you don't like the bike, you can sell it and still pocket a few hundred bucks. Even if you only pocket a hundred bucks, it's worth it for the experience. But if this bike's worth $2,000, and by the time you've done the tires and the brakes and the, 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 the it's 2500 bucks, and you're not that attached to it, you just walk away. Now, conversely, if you're attached to the bike, if the bike's got history, if it was dad's bike mm-hmm. or grandpa's bike or your crazy uncle from Alabama's bike, you know, the one with no teeth, <laughs> um, that's different. And then the value becomes a lot more subjective. How much is it really worth? It's what it's worth to you. And that's more of what I deal with because I deal with people's memories. And what value can you put on a 60-year-old guy feeling like he's 18 again? Quite a lot, actually. Someone, someone told me one time, emotion starts with a dollar sign. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, but I think that's valid. Like if that is how it makes you feel and that is worth you paying that money for, then I think it's totally fine. But you know, if you're a younger person trying to need a commuter bike, then it's yeah. a different decision. Well, but I tell you one thing that can that really bring an old project screeching to a halt very, very quickly is gas tanks. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Because gas tanks are getting harder to find. Yeah. Decent gas tanks are getting harder to find. And if you find your bargain basement bike, even if the engine seized, well, you may have to pull the jugs off, but piston rings are easy to get. You know, I've got a 1953 MV Augusta engine on my bench right now out of a utility truck. 
Hmm. And I pulled the jug off and it got broken piston rings. I just got some. Rings are easy to get. Valves are easy to get. Blah, 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 blah. Gaskets you can make. Carburetors you can rebuild. You'd be amazed what you can do with a mixed and match carburetor, even carburetors with busted diaphragms. Gas tanks are something quite different. Yeah, I've had a few bikes that I got that um, they looked fine, and then when you clean it, you've got holes in the bottom. You've got the pinholes. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, there's such a high ethanol content in gasoline these days. Yep. Even the best quality gas liners aren't going to last very long. Well, I want to talk about, um, let's, let's focus on rust, how to deal with rust. Because there's different, I mean, levels of rust. And there's light rust and there's heavy rust. And rust right. is damaging. But it also, in many times, can be dealt with. And there's even some nice home remedies. So let's talk about rust. When, when you have surface rust, and I had sent you all a, a picture. This is just an example that there's a, a bike for sale on Craigslist for a couple hundred bucks. And I see a bike like this, and I'm like, nope, don't want it. Because every single chrome item has rust. It's going to be pitted. Approaching it wrong. But more than that, I also see the aluminum rust. Well, no, I, I'm going to stop you or there. Or oxidization, right? But right. Um, So let's talk about but, what rust is. Yeah. Let's talk about what rust is. So rust is the byproduct of oxidization of steel and iron. Mm-hmm. And it is basically um, the oxygen in the air and actually in water makes a chemical reaction with the surface of a steel part, forms rust, and actually eats it away. Now, aluminum and an aluminum alloy, because there's very, very few parts on a motorcycle that are made of pure aluminum. They're mostly made out of an aluminum alloy. The Japanese manufacturers like to put a lot of zinc in their aluminum. That's why it's very, very bright. Um, British manufacturers put a lot of chromium in their aluminium, which is why it's sort of it's hard. It's a harder metal, so it shines up. But basically, an alloy is lots and lots of different metals all mixed together. On an uh, aluminum alloy, when it forms that crust. It actually preserves the aluminum underneath, mm. which is why you can get, you take that little, poor little star, mm-hmm. the chrome is done. The steel parts are done. Yeah. But if you were to get a wire brush on that engine, it would come up like brand new and there's no loss of metal. The only time you will really see a great amount of metal loss on an aluminum part or an aluminum alloy part is where metal of another kind, dissimilar metals have been bolted together. Mm. Yep. And that's what causes actual loss of material. Um, my first home in America was a 1957 Airstream trailer. Mm-hmm. And it was perfect except where the running lights had bolted on. Mm. And the running lights were chrome steel. And where they'd bolted on, the alloy had crumbled and they'd fallen in. Yeah. Just in that area. Otherwise, it was perfect. 
my solution was to buy slightly larger running lights. <laughs> and it worked perfectly. But, you know, it lived in a damp environment by the sea all its life. And the only corrosion on the aluminum was where the dissimilar metal was bolted together. So two different things. Um, when you talk about rust on steel, yeah. you actually have to talk about depth of penetration and percentage of the original product left. Mm -hmm. And when you express in those terms, so if you're taking a frame, let's say you're taking the swing arm of that bike, it's only going to become a problem where penetration gets beyond 30% of the depth of the steel. And you actually start talking about 60% 60, 60 integrity of the original metal. And then it's going to be a real problem. Now, that's very, very difficult to gauge. But that's some pretty friggin' heavy pitting. Yeah. But I find that um, painted or powder-coated uh, items are less likely to have the issue as chrome-plated do. Well, it depends on the chrome. So let's talk about how different manufacturers approach chrome. Do you remember a certain tiger cub? Yeah, and, and that was a perfect example. And that tiger cub that was sitting outside on its side in ivy for like a decade. And you think that it would have been completely rusted through. And one of the reasons I, I, I grabbed that bike, because all the steel's rusted, but those pipes were almost perfect and that's right. because a lot of people died to make that chrome well <laughs> back when that tiger cub was new in the early yeah. 60s everything was done to a british standard and british standard there was this thing called the british standard kite mark and you'd have you'd buy a an iron to iron your clothes and on the box it'd have the sort of something that looked like the shape of a kite with BS 123-7, which meant it was built to a British standard. And chroming was actually done to a British standard. And in order to chrome a piece properly, you've got to do um, a nickel plate, which, you know, bonds to the um, substrate, the steel itself. Then you put on a copper plate, and you can really build up some thickness with the copper. And then the chrome goes on top. And chrome actually comes out yellow. And you've got to polish it, and all the yellow goes away. And then it becomes that thing that we, we know and love. So if plating's done well, you won't have a problem. Yeah. But the Japanese manufacturers, particularly on a budget bike like a Twinstar, mm -hmm. the chrome's just done on bare steel. Well, so there's a lot of porosity in the chrome. Not even budget, because the number one reason that I sold my custom chopper, that within one year of assembling it and storing it in my garage here by the ocean, I had whole sheets of chrome flaking off of very expensive components. Very expensive. Right. And that I blame on the chroming process that's allowed here in California and the States. And they are more and more restricted on the chroming process and, and, and the chemicals that they can use is how it was explained to me. And that for really good chrome, 
people had to die (laughs) because it was so poisonous working in the factory. Well, you know, unfortunately, one of the um, one of the processes within the chroming um, how to actually chrome is a cyanide bath. You know, and they yeah. use it as a cleaner and trichoethylene bath. And these are rather bad chemicals. So, um, yeah, I mean, chroming is not pleasant. I mean, it's it's not a career you'd want really want to excel in being a chromer. Um, but let's talk about getting rust off of chrome. Um, yes. Pipes are a perfect example, right? When you uh, get an old bike, it's very hard to get original pipes for many right. bikes. Even if you're talking about like a CB750, four and a four, because everyone tossed those and got aftermarket pipes. You can't get those four and a fours. So I want to know, Emma, what are some of your tips and tricks and methods for tackling chrome? Right. Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to understand expectation versus reality. Mm-hmm. And not everything's going to come up looking like it did when it was new. In the classic bike world, we employ a lot of techniques called, um, it's a French term called trompe lol which basically means trick of the eye. Mm -hmm. And trick of the eye is drawing your gaze, your attention, away from a shitty part (laughs) onto a good part. And so if you're presented, say, with an exhaust pipe, now exhaust pipes rust very, very heavily. Why is this? Well, I shall tell you. The heat cycling of an exhaust pipe accelerates Mm. the corrosion process. Because if you're talking about oxidization, when you introduce heat, the oxidization process speeds up. Right, Bagel? Yep. There you go. Which is why generally you can have a bike with scabby chrome and all the chrome pretty much cleans up except on the exhaust pipe where it's just pitted to all hell. So... What you've basically got to do is you've got to say to yourself, okay, what am I going to get out of this pipe? And a lot of it is just inspecting and looking at what you've got. If you run your finger over the chrome and it's smooth, but obviously that orange color, or it's just a little bit bumpy, the chances are you're going to be able to bring it back and you can bring it back pretty well. Um, All chrome polishes are an abrasive, every single one. So the way I usually attack chrome is I'll use the proprietary um, rust-removing gel, like navel jelly, which Mm -hmm. I like very much. Rather than paint it on and leave it, I'll actually get it on a sponge. I, I love those SOS sponges that you use to do your dishes. Mm. and I'll soak one of those, wear rubber gloves now because it is corrosive, and just rub it backwards and forwards on the chrome until you get that orange color away and wash it very, very soon afterwards. Now, the SOS is basically just steel wool, right? Oh, yeah. No, um, what are are those pads? 3M. Plastic ones. 3M. Really, the, the green scrubby ones? No, the blue the blue green ones, ones yes. are quite tough. The blue yeah, I was going to say, the green ones will yeah. scratch. 
Yeah, the blue ones are a lot better. I think yeah. they they come from Costco, and of course, Kathy's cheap, so she cuts them in half. <laughs> um, Great way to use them. But you want to be gentle with it. And and yeah. Bagel brings up a very very good point. It's very very easy to scratch Chrome, and no matter what a YouTube tutorial will tell you, no matter what your crazy toothless uncle in Alabama tells you, once you've scratched Chrome, it's going to stay scratched. You can't polish it. You can have a damn good try, but it's always going to have, it might look great in one light, but then you go around the other one, you're like, oh, God. You know, you get it at a certain angle, the scratches are there. So you've got to be very, very gentle with it. Less is more. So if you use a, one of these blue plastic pads use plenty of lubrication that means soapy water and just keep it moving don't rub it on very hard and just less is more if you're dealing with a whole exhaust pipe if you want to do rust removal on it and it's going to take you less than an hour and a half you're rushing just go a little bit at a time in an unobtrusive area and feel out feel out how it's going to be and just understand when you get to the top where it comes out of the cylinder head, where there's the highest heat and the highest oxidization, it's going to be tough. You might not yeah. be able to get the pits out of it. And I wanted to say, I've, I've tackled bikes that had very rusted pipes that looked like they were toast. And once I got in there, my method is using um, WD-40 and 4 aught steel wool. And there's right. pros and cons to that. The, the con being that steel wool, like anything else, is still an abrasive. So the yes. good chrome, you're now going to be putting scratches in it. But right. the bad chrome with the rust, you're taking it down. And then in some cases, I had a bike I did that had been in storage for a long time. I actually had to pull out a um, a brush, a wire brush uh, to put on a drill and really just WD and just right. to take the big stuff off. Yeah, you're pitting it. It's going to be worse, but... I think a lot of it is you've got to take the rust away and then you can treat it to prevent it from getting worse because right. that's the other half people tend to forget. And that's that kind of dovetails into the whole Trump whole thing I was saying, that you've really you've got to have a look at the pipe. And, yes, there's a nice piece of chrome there and it's quite lovely, but the rest of it's crap. Is it worth sacrificing that one bit of chrome so that everything's got a few scratches on? Maybe it is. But I think the thing is, when you're dealing with chrome, understand it is very easy to scratch. Once it is scratched, it's virtually impossible to bring the luster back. Um, go slowly. Now, a question I have, though, uh, chrome is is a fairly hard metal. Yes. So... So if you, but you, so you can clean it with something like steel wool and that won't scratch it, right? It will scratch it. Oh, it will. Because, yes, it will. Mm. If you, yeah, I had always heard that you, you clean chrome, chrome with steel wool and it won't hurt it, but apparently it will. No, it will. Mm. If you look at chrome when it's brand new, it's got, it's almost a, a liquid look. There's, yeah. There should be no marks on it at all. And it's really just a reflection of what's going on underneath. 
but you can really you can take that luster off and that in itself isn't a bad thing it takes on the appearance almost of stainless steel um but if you if you want that factory look you've really got to be very very careful how you approach chrome so i wanted to talk about some home remedies and tricks emma you're in a dark room now. You should turn a light on. <laughs> As the sun has gone down, now it's like she's just kind of in this dark room. Um, better? Much better. I wanted to talk about some home remedy- remedies um, for dealing with um, surf- surface rust and also uh, gas tanks. That's a big thing that everyone's asking how to do. Right. And there's a lot of products out there. So first question, Emma, what products do you use and then let's talk about some of the home remedies okay so um my favorite thing with with gas tanks is this stuff called metal rescue Mm -hmm. so um i want to talk about tank liners Mm -hmm. i'm going to stick my neck out here there isn't a single decent tank liner on the market not anymore and before people say well what have you got against tank liners i don't it's just a nature of the formulation of the fuel we have. Right. Yeah. And that's what's changed. And that's what's changed. Yeah. Tank liners 20 years ago were great. Yeah. But the fuel now has got such a high ethanol content, it just eats through tank liners, eats through fiberglass gas tanks too. So if you are able to, what I tend to do with tanks is it's a two-stage affair. I made this tool, and it looks like a miniature chimney sweeps brush. Mm -hmm. It's a circular metal wire wheel on the end of a long stick. And I put it in a drill, and I stick it in through the gas cap, and I go, and I actually rotate through the gas tank and try and break up as much of the loose loose rust as Mm -hmm. I can. Now, you can also do the same thing with 10 drywall screws and a little bit of kerosene. You want to break up the loose stuff. You think those are heavy enough? Oh, yeah. And I like drywall screws because they're sharp, very, very mm, sharp okay. edges. Why do I use 10? So you can count them on the way out. Count them on the way in, count them on the way out. Don't yes. want to be leaving drywall screws in your tank. So... Um, Hold on, I think John had a question. Yes, John. This is this might be a little uh, as a sidelight, but do you recommend using the enzymes or any of the sort of ethanol treatments that are out there in, in motorcycles? Um, what for the fuel? For the fuel, yeah. No, it's snake oil. It's snake. <laughs> snake oil. Save your money. I hope you saved your um, receipt, John. Credit yeah, <laughs> right. Cheaper to find non-ethanolated gas anyway. Exactly. Okay. So, um, so uh, you said Metal Rescue is one product to use. And so you break break up the loose stuff and then use Metal Rescue as directed on the can. And just get as much of it out as you're able. And what you're looking for, when you look into the gas cap, you want to see a nice kind of flat gray finish. That's what you're aiming for. Um if your tank's got holes in it, right? Well, you know, 
you've kind of got problems. There's very little you can do about it. You yeah. can try one of the better quality liners because your choices are so limited. Um, you can, if it's a single pinhole, you can get friendly with a local welding shop who may be able to weld it up for you. Oh, I have a story. Yes. Uh, when I was building my CB750 Cafe Racer, and yes. I mentioned the tank uh, had holes in it. Once I cleaned the whole process, right? Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. But on my tank, I cut out panels off of the side, and there's a little trick you can do. You know, a lot of bikes look cool when you have it um, scoop in. You, just, you know, how do you – they're like scalloped Scoopy. in. Scalloped. Yes. Scalloped, right? So what the trick is, you create a template – and then you, you cut it out on both sides, and then you swap those sides. So now the inside of the left, yeah, the outside mm. of the left side becomes the inside of the right side. Does that make sense? Ooh, uh, yes. So then wow. it scoops in. So while I had this big opening about the size of my hand, we were able to get in there and actually brazed all those pinholes. Wow. Right. And just sealed them up. Hmm. You see, on a very similar note, so this is of particular interest for people who are listening to us who are riding sport bikes. When I got Rufus, um, if people don't know the story of Rufus, Rufus was bought brand new by a young man um, in 1995. And he rode it for a couple of years and got married and his girlfriend had a baby. And his father-in-law said, look, no more riding bikes for you. You need to take care of my daughter and my granddaughter. And the guy said, okay, will do. Um, father-in-law bought this guy a body shop to make a living and quite a successful body shop as well. And he just didn't get rid of Rufus. And he stuck him in the corner where he accumulated about a foot of Bondo dust. Oh, <laughs> Until I came along and dragged him out. But the gas tank was the worst I had ever encountered. But it had perfect factory paint on it. And Rufus has got this most gorgeous purple and gray and yellow paint job. It's glorious. And be absolutely impossible to duplicate. But like most sport bikes of the era, it's got a flat bottom gas tank. So what I did was I used a thermal barrier on the paint. And a thermal barrier, it's almost like it's almost like modeling clay. It's almost like plaster of Paris, but it helps um it helps heat spreading. So the you know, heat sink. It's almost like a heat sink. Heat goes so far and then the thermal barrier stops it. And then I cut the whole bottom of the gas tank out. Just mm. cut it out. And then once I'd done that, I was able to mechanically remove all the rust from inside the tank and then weld a new bottom in. Wow. And so basically I ended up with a rust-free tank without any chemicals. Um, I'd never have been able to do it without cutting the bottom of the tank because unfortunately Suzuki, like a lot of modern sport bikes, has got this system of tubes running inside the tank for various breathers and overflows and blah, 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 blah. And you simply wouldn't be able to get in. 
So that's what I did. Now, you can do that. Strictly speaking, you can do that on any bike. You can cut the bottom of the gas tank out, even if it's got a hump in it. If you're confident that you can duplicate that hump, and remember, it's underneath. It doesn't have to be pretty. It's kind of a last-ditch thing. But if you've got an impossible-to-find gas tank, just impossible to find, if you've got welding skills or you've got a friend who's got welding skills or you've got just some shit-hot welder in your town, consider cutting the bottom of the tank out and getting a new bottom put in. And while the bottom's off, get that rust out. Because if you mechanically get it out, and remember, the gas tank is open to you. Um, I just went in there with 100 grit sandpaper. And, you and can... I physically removed all the rust from inside of Rufus's tank. Got rid of all the pits, everything. Treated it with acid. No paint in there, just bare steel, lovely flat gray color, cleaned it all out, welded a new tank on the bottom. All right. So for people who don't want to go that deep, there are a lot of methods. And I wanted to talk about some of these home remedies. Yes. A lot of people don't realize that you have things in your cabinet that can do this. White vinegar. Yes. Yeah. It's an acid and it will etch the metal lightly. Uh, but it's safe to work with. And yes. uh, what do you, I think you leave it in there. How long do you leave it in there? Overnight, you should see something. I mean, for really bad cases, you know, you could leave it in for many days. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the thing is, generally, if you've dragged a bike out of the garage, you're going to have plenty of other things to do. So attack the tank first while you're doing all the rest of the stuff on the bike. So you're not sitting there watching the tank saying, oh, when's this going to be ready? Right. So here's another trick I found out about. Lemon juice and baking soda. Have you heard of this one? I use it in my recipes. (laughs) Yeah. So you mix it together and it makes a paste and the lemon juice is the acid and you can apply it. So maybe you have something that you can't soak it in. So maybe exhaust, something like that. And you can create this paste out of lemon juice and baking soda and and apply it. So there's a little trick. And then here's another one I found out today that sounds really cool. I want to try it. And I think you said you've not heard of this one either. A potato and salt. It's the making making of a bag of chips. It's making crisps. So what it you is do? Crisp. <laughs> I know. Um, you cut a potato in half, and you apply salt on the open cut end, and you now use that to scrub a rusty item. It's basically you. The salt is the abrasive, and it's just a. Uh, and then I think that the potato has. That's a very, very light. Uh, yeah, because you can make a potato battery. So there's a light, light acid in the potato, right? Right. Um, and uh, yeah, you use that to to scrub. So if you're afraid of scratching the rust, salt in a potato. Exactly. Hmm. But, you know, the salt is quite abrasive. You've got to be careful with salt. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and also it, it, it will, salt will actually speed up oxidation, won't it? Yes. 
Right. So I'd, I'd be, I'd be leery about putting salt on rust. That sounds like, well, again, you have to treat it afterwards. Okay. I mean, anytime you're doing any sort of a resurrection like this, treating it, you can't just leave it unless, um, where I've done, where I've used the WD-40, the advantage is you've left a coating of a thin coating of oil on it. It's not a permanent fix, but it's better than nothing. And, you know, just leaving some WD. Emma, what have you used to, to repair and prevent rust? Well, you know, um, repairing rust, I mean, we've already talked about it. I'm a huge fan of the chemicals because mm -hmm. it's not abrasive. The only thing you've got to watch with the chemicals is allow it to do its job and get it off quickly. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of hot soapy water. Never. You can take a disgusting looking rusted piece. You can put some navel jelly on it. Keep it moving. Don't let it dry out and wash it with hot soapy water. And it'll look a million times better than you think. Million times better than you expect it to. Um, as far as preservation goes, WD-40 is a very, very good tool. Mm -hmm. If you spray WD-40 into a rag and just wipe it over the chrome, you know, in Monterey, we always joke that a typical Monterey bike looks perfect from the back, the left, and the right. From head on, it looks like a sack of shit <laughs> because we're always riding up and down Highway 1 with that salty sea air. Yeah. And... If you look at a Monterey bike from head on, they look terrible. My Guzzi was a great example. You know, yeah. every angle looked great, but if you looked at it from head on, you thought it was a different bike because it spent its life going up and down Highway 1. Um, but just spraying WD-40 and just putting a thin film on the chrome really helps preserve it. It just gives it that little bit of a barrier against right. the salt. And regular cleaning, regular cleaning. Right. And let's remember that WD and WD-40 stands for water dispersant. Mm. Right. It will keep the moisture out that creates the corrosion. Yep. 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 Can, uh, can I offer a couple of uh, home remedies? Yeah. Um, so you'd, you'd mentioned uh, uh, lemon and vinegar, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's another one that is actually a little bit um, less aggressive than that is uh, CLR. Yeah. Which is oh yeah. The, Cal the calcium lime cleaner. rust. Right. So if you don't if you don't want to go too aggressive, say if it's a part that's something something that's a little bit more rare, harder to replace, you don't want to you know be too aggressive at first. Maybe try <laughs> some CLR on it. Um, you know, be gentle with it. And I use um, CLR on the uh, aluminum as well. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I don't know if, is that recommended for aluminum though? Yeah. Maybe if you, if you wipe it off real quick, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, aluminum, aluminum you do need to be careful about. Um, but another, another home remedy that I'd heard of, um, that, uh, apparently does work pretty well too, is, uh, Coca-Cola. Yes. Coca-Cola and tinfoil. Yeah. Well, it has, it has carbonic acid in it and that like any other acid will take away rust. That's a good one too. Yeah. Well, I 
you know, we could keep talking about these tricks and I want to save the, let's, let's save it for another episode. Cause I got a lot of emails I want to get to, but, um, Emma, I think this is something that we can d- dig deeper into. And a lot of, yeah, I think so because you know, it, it's, you don't need to spend a fortune. Oftentimes mm-hmm. there's things under the kitchen sink, which you can use. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can make your mom, girlfriend, boyfriend, dad very, very happy by using all their best kitchen stuff on your motorbike. So the the last question I have for you, Emma, because we talked about all these different types of, you know, restoration or just yes. preservation. Yes, yes. Regardless of what path you're going on. What Get are on the, the road and ride no, it. What are the things that you can still upgrade? For instance, uh, chain tires like what are the things that are acceptable to update and upgrade regardless of how perfect of a restoration you're doing let's talk about motorbikes being actually things you ride (laughs) i don't even want to talk about those horrible specimens that are on the lawn at the quail which have the original 1970s tires on and those aren't motorbikes. Those are just looking things. <laughs> if you want to upgrade your bike, yeah. put modern tires on it. Yep. Brilliant. Put modern oil in it. It'll thank you. Um, batteries are a great example. In the old days, a battery was a clear plastic box with lead plates in it, with fiberglass matting in between the lead plates, and you filled it up with acid, and your bike overcharged, and the acid came out of the overflow tube, which you diligently rooted right, but of course you forgot to put it on at the top of the battery, Mm -hmm. so all the acid came out and just droozled all over your beautiful chrome pipes and stained them. No need to put a, an, an old-fashioned battery on your bike, even though you can still get them. It's far better to find an equivalent maintenance-free battery. Put that on your bike. Um, How about headlight bulbs? Okay to put... Well, electrics uh, in general. Okay. If you, if you have a six-volt bike, particularly a British bike, see if you can convert it to 12-volt. All right, and this is exactly, these are all acceptable. Yeah. You're not going to lose, you're not going to lose credibility by turning up at a local bike show and your BSA Bantam is now running a 12-volt headlight. Yeah. Okay. Because you converted it to 12 volts. So you can actually bloody see at night. Um, You know, things like this, oil, batteries, tires if you really want to get deep and dirty into it getting brake shoes relined with a modern material yeah if your bike's got drum brakes really really help mm-hmm. you know Good. putting modern cables on it with the nylon in a sleeve so the cables work better there's all kinds of things you can do to actually make riding a vintage bike a more pleasant experience and still keep very much a vintage look. You know, what I did to the Trident, as pretty as it is, is completely sacrilegious to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Because I changed it so fundamentally. Thankfully, most people love it. But I didn't, 
I, I needn't have gone that far. I could have kept the original size wheel, the original forks, the original brakes, and just made the most of it. Put modern internals in the original forks. Yes, Bagel. Now, what about uh, upgrading to an electronic ignition for a bike that originally had points? You know, I go backwards and forwards with this. Hmm. Um, I'm going to say no. Not hmm. on a, I say on a restoration, that's something that crosses the line. I have heard Emma wax poetic about points. You know, know yeah. a lot of my bikes end up with points. Yeah. And, but bear in mind, I am very, very old school. If you're riding around with a Boyer electronic ignition or a Dyna or a Dyna S electronic ignition or a Paison or a TriSpark, and all these are ignitions you can buy to upgrade your points-equipped bike, and it fails, you're dead in the water. Mm -hmm. If you're riding a bike with points, if you keep them adjusted and look at them once in a while, it's rare your bike won't get you home. And even if you have a failure, you can still ride home. And that's why most of my bikes have points. Yes, 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 Liza. Sorry. <laughs> so there you go. Points. There you go. Points, darling. Thank points. you. So oh, you're welcome. Um, let's get to some emails. Jim, Ooh, uh, you're going to like Let me get one. into my email because you sent me one. I did. Jim, yes. uh, remember our friend Daniel and Custer? Yeah. So totally. this is uh, from the Broken Arrow Campground. Yeah, that place was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very cool. So uh, yeah. he says, hey, I got one from Miss Emma. A friend is giving me a 1982 Honda Twinstar 200T. Yes, what a great little bike. Says that the spark plug hole needs to be rethreaded. The internet has dozens of different ways to do it. What does the awesome Miss Emma recommend? By the way, Black Hills is always a great road trip for a misfit, and I'd love to host a bunch of you at our camp. Thank you, Daniel. Bye. And and I, I no doubt we'll see you again, maybe even this summer, I'm going to say. Um, and I appreciate the invitation to stay at your horse camp, which is really cool. But I will be staying at the Chalet Inn, owned by our friend Michelle. The so, Chalet. So, um, Emma, rethread yes, a spark plug hole. Um, yeah, and so the Twin Star, um, little 200cc or a 185cc Honda Twin, they're awesome. First real factory cruiser, little step seat and high mm -hmm. handlebars, just an awesome little bike. I love them. However, they had tiny, tiny 10 millimeter thread spark plugs, and they were very, very easy to strip. Mm. Um, I'm going to tell you the proper way to do it first. The proper way to do it first is to take the cylinder head off, put it in the, put it on the bench, drill out the hole, tap out the hole, put a helicoil in there, lock the helicoil in, put your spark plug back in, bolt the cylinder head back on the bike. Bob's your uncle. Can I jump in? Yes. And if this is something you think you're not um, able to do, there are. No, but that's not what I do. Okay, but hold on. If that's something that 
you think someone isn't able to do, there are a lot of shops like our Napa Auto Parts here in town. Yes. You could t- walk in and they could do it there. They have a machine shop in back. They can. Yeah. But that's not what I do okay. anyway. So here's what I do is I would buy a helicoil kit for a 10 millimeter spark plug. Buy the kit. Understand how the kit works. Read the instructions completely. Understand, yes, this is this is how I'm going to make it work. Get the appropriate size drill. All right? Set your drill on slow, very slow, and smear a load of the goopiest, gloopiest, gr- groupiest <laughs> grease all over the drill bit and drill out the hole with the in-situ on the bike. And the grease will entrap 90% Mm. of the filings. Tap it, put the healer coil in, put your spark plug in, get riding. It's as simple as that. Now, the twin star, the plugs come out at 45 degrees. They're kind of like that. So it's actually quite easy to get to. Take the tank off so you've got plenty of room. Understand what you're doing and go slow. Okay. That's exactly what I do. Could I just ask, though, um, because if, if especially when you're tapping or drilling and tapping a, a, a spark plug yes. thread, yes. you want to make sure that you've got that angle just right. So yes. wouldn't you really want to do that with a drill press rather than with a hand drill, though? Yeah, I mean, yes. However, yeah. however, it's going to be really hard with a drill press anyway because it's at 45 degrees, so you'd have to make a jig. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you're yeah. going to be... You're going to be working within the constraints of really the plug hole that's there. As long as you go slowly, you use exactly the right size drill bit. I think it will, can be done quite easily on the bike. Yeah, it'll, okay. it'll find its path. It'll, it'll find its path. Yeah. Just go really, really slowly. And... Double check your angles and everything. Double check your angles. Make sure you're going in straight. And again, when it comes time to tap it, to put the thread in to take the helical. Again, smear everything with grease so that all the shavings as you're cutting that thread are sticking to the grease and not falling into the combustion chamber. Mm. Now, they're kind of going to fall in there a little bit anyway, but if you kind of get your flashlight in the in the big plug hole and kind of fish around with a Q-tip, mm-hmm. again, smeared with grease. You can get nearly all the shavings out anyway. And remember, mm-hmm. the shavings are very, very soft aluminum. So they're mostly going to blow out the exhaust port anyway. It's mm-hmm. it's an appalling, appalling dodge, but it's one I would take there because I really think you're not going to lose. Guess what? If one gets trapped under the exhaust valve, you're pulling the head anyway. Yeah. So you've got absolutely nothing to lose by attempting it. Nothing. I got another real short one. And, John, I think you're going to like this one. Uh Uh, This one is from Michael. And he says, hey, Liza mentioned that she likes post-apocalyptic bikes with knobbies on them. Um, 
I thought she might like uh, to check out our Facebook group, Inappropriate Dirt Bikes. And I did, and I liked it, and I joined. I I recommend you check it out. Inappropriate Dirt Bikes. Any scooters on there? Uh, It's just everything. I mean, it's sport bikes. It's everything. Uh, So, yeah, check it out. Uh, Emma, you have one there to read? I do. I do. So here we go. So this is from, let me get down to the name. It is from Gav. And Gav writes, Hey, Misfits, can Emma tell where this service is and where I have just come from to pick up this little toy? I'll give her a clue. It was her old stomping grounds. I'm just on my way back up north to Bolton now and was wondering what her and the rest of you thought I should fix or break. It's a GPZ 305. Didn't even get this in America. Yeah. It has a bad motor and needs lots of love, but quite an obscure little bike to find parts for and is way too small for me. But I. Hang on. Yeah. But it's cute, and I just can't make up my mind of. Love the show, and hope you are all well and safe. Um, Gav, and he puts P.S. crap picture, but I know how to get out of the car and take another. So, oh, Gav, it's adorable, and, mate. This is the picture of him. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm guessing I'm going to stick my neck out here, Gav. I'm going to stick my neck out here. So Gavin is indeed at one of my old stomping grounds, and that is the Hilton Park Services on the M6. Huh. And the Hilton Park Services are very interesting. See that big square building in the background with all the windows in it, Liza? Yeah. That used to be a restaurant. Oh, how And cool. from the 80s, they stopped serving food in there in the 80s, and it's just office buildings now. But I actually had a meal in that place. Cool. When it, back when it was a restaurant in the 70s. So that's in Wolverhampton. I guess he bought that bike in Birmingham because you kind of go Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Bolton. Yeah. So that that's where I'm going to stick my neck out, Gav. Um, so you're at the Hilton Park Services on the M6. Very good indeed. Um, I actually blew up the transmission in the Vauxhall Ventura at those very services as well, yeah. which I was extremely unhappy about because I hadn't had it long. <laughs> and um, it was a lovely car, but the transmission just went bang. It was a manual overdrive, and I put it into overdrive, and there was this loud clanking noise. And the next thing I know, I looked in my rearview mirror, and my drive shaft was lying in the slow lane. Oh, very unhappy state of affairs. In a, I limped well, up to uh, Hilton Park and just had a little cry, really. So his question was, should he fix or break this bike? So oh, fix it. Fix I, that's it. what I was going to say. And if it's a little 305, that's the perfect size engine to work on. on well, you know, on your bench, you can was, pull it. it you, w- do all the things. When it was new, Liza, which was 80, 82, 83, it was really a bike looking for a home mm-hmm. because back then, you know, the, the learner laws were originally 250. Oh, and then yeah. I think in 84, they made it 125. Mm-hmm. But the 305 was always a bit of an oddity because it had kind of had the power of a 250, but you had to pass your test to ride it. Um, so it was kind of a bit of an orphan back then. 
Nowadays, here in 2020, it actually makes a lot more sense. And yeah, I agree, Gav, you are a big guy, but what a charming little bike. It's and quite lovely. Good looking. I love the styling on the GPZs. Love we call it. them Batmobiles. GPZ, darling. It's Zed. I'm trying to be American, sweetie. <laughs> I'm trying to concede. Um, no, fix it up. Yeah. Always, always, always. Because once you break a bike, or as we say in America, parting it out, it's done. Yeah. And that bike's got some history to it. Oh, that's what he asked if he should break it. I'm like, throw it off a cliff. I'm not sure no. what he means. <laughs> Part it oh, out. Oh, no. good. No, yeah, yeah fix it. it Go for yeah. it. Um, all right, Bagel, you have one there to read? I do. I think I sent it to you for a particular reason. Yes. And this email <laughs> starts off saying, howdy, y'all. Howdy, howdy, how. I'm Robert from Texas. But randomly speak with a Minnesota accent from time, don't you know? <laughs> This is going to be interesting. <laughs> I found your podcast a little over a year ago and can't get enough. A <laughs> little old you. I've even tried to listen to some of the early stuff, but found it best to work backwards. I also had to go back, rewatch Ride with Norman Reedus to say, holy cow, I know these guys. Holy cow. Being a newer dad, I don't get to ride a lot. <laughs> but maybe that could change with a better commuter bike. Bagel, bagel. Yes, your accent is jumping from crag to crag like a mountain goat. He randomly speaks with a Minnesota accent from time to time, don't you know? All right. (laughs) So, uh, being a newer dad, I don't get to ride a lot, but maybe that could change with a better commuter bike. The thing is, my ninety-five KLR isn't up to snuff with the morning cagers. I feel like eighty miles an hour for about twenty minutes is the safe zone for the DFW Metroplex. I'm six feet two with 360 pounds with tree trunks for legs. I feel I need at least an extra cylinder, and I'm always looking at early 2000s V-Strom 1000s. I love the standard riding position, and even finding them for under and, and even finding them for under four thousand dollars here and there with about three, 30k miles. I just don't know if a Versa 650 will get my big S down the road any better. <laughs> Weight loss is my number one goal, but more power is the second. Any thoughts on older bikes I should try out? Also, no issue with cruisers, just not into them as I can't afford a fat Bob or fat Bob or fat Rob. <laughs> I love you guys and thanks for the time. PS, M is right. There are better bikes out there. I just like having my apocalypse bike on hand that I won't be able to use due to having a family. Thank <laughs> you, Robert. Well done, sir. Can I? Can yes. I, well, yes. Can I make a recommendation? I think John might agree because John owns a KLR, but he also owns a Triumph. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be a great bike for you. Yeah, I love that bike. I got it a couple months ago. It's uh, my stubby legs and yep. I'm about his size yep. in terms of weight. Uh, it's the 800. Um, and it's uh, got all the power I could want, and it's comfortable as all get out. Mm. So I would highly recommend the Triumph 800. And given that the 850 had just come out, um, the 800s are getting cheaper now. And, uh, yeah, it's a great bike. And, and how tall are you, John? <laughs> Five, <clears throat> seven on a good day. Okay. But his well, legs are two foot two. 
<laughs> well, Robert is six two, so that might that might be a little bit different of a, hey, of a fit. Well, I'll I'll throw out a bike uh, just because a, a younger person I know just bought one. They were on a budget, needed a commuter, holds down two jobs, and went with the Honda NC seven hundred. It was a 2014, 2,700 miles, and he got it for four grand. And nice. Think, you know, that, yeah, and that, that's actually, I think they uh, market that as kind of a commuter motorcycle. But, um, you know, that's kind of another off the radar like a Versus, but, you know, a 700cc bike. So the, that might be one um, to consider. The Versus 650 will get, you, will get you down the road, I want to say. It is a good motor. Yeah. He Brian, could also... Uh, go to a 16 tooth front sprocket and that would give him uh, more RPMs for about 500 yeah. more RPMs. Hmm. So in the meantime, before he buys another bike, that'll help the KLR get down the road quicker. True. There you go. There are some options. Okay. I think we got time for, Oh, let's, well, I got two. All right. I'm going to start with this one. And this one is from John. And he says, Hey everyone. Great name. Uh, I enjoy, hey, John. I enjoy all your podcasts and I look forward to listening to all your bantering with each other. One of the more enjoyable motorcycle podcasts out there. I have a oh, question good, uh. for miss Emma. When, Hi, darling. when is it a good idea to have a steering damper on your bike? Oh, I it's have, always a good idea. He says I have an Africa twin and I'm planning to ride the continental divide this year. See, I figured that Jim would be listening now. I'm thinking that dampers are more for racing applications or real hot dogs off-road. Anyway, interested in any thoughts on when they might be a good idea. Um, so what do you guys what do you guys think about that? Well, let's talk about what a damper does very, very quickly. So a damper slows things down. It does so with suspension. If you ever see if you're ever driving down a road and you look at a car, and its wheels literally bouncing up and down, boing, 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 the dampers are shot. So the damper slows it down, slows that movement down. And that's exactly what it does with the steering. If you've got a bike that's a little front-happy, which means usually these are bikes that carry their weight further back, that they're a little bit unstable at the front and they can oscillate the handlebars. Oftentimes, you put a damper on it, it cures it, so you don't get that waggling effect. The disadvantage, why all bikes don't have a damper, is it can make the steering a little bit heavier. Um, you know, Africa Twin's a big, heavy bike with skinny tires. I think he'd, he'd find an improvement with a damper. The only thing... He's got to figure out is where the hell he's going to put it. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, most dampers, most dampers have got an adjustment on them. Yeah. You can you put know, it on the riding on road, you have it soft, you're on the freeway, you yeah. screw it up hard. Now you said, Liza, yours actually becomes quite terrifying when you go above what, 70? Hey, yeah. I, well, but I think it's the knobbies. Well, no, I'll chime in. I think it might be maybe you didn't balance your tire properly. I've I've yeah. had my my Hunt Africa Twin at about 105, maybe 110 on those Shinko 704 mm -hmm. block knobbies, whatever we run, and it's you know it's not comfortable, but I I never that's about where I I still feel safe. So I've right. you know I've done over 100 on that Africa Twin with knobbies, you know the big blocks, and you know, I didn't feel unsafe or I didn't get any wobble. I didn't go any more than that. But with that said, I have never ridden a bike with a steering damper. So I don't know what that would be like, yeah. but 
like I said, I've done 100 on the Africa Twin for a sustained amount of time, trying to catch you and Emma actually on Highway 101 when you were coming back from somewhere. Um, but I didn't feel unsafe at that speed. I was like three miles behind you guys for like 20. That's when we were coming back from LA. Yeah, we were like literally, oh, hauling, hauling the mail trying to catch you guys. Um, but yeah, I tend to put steering dampers on everything, I like them. Um, so, um, give it a whirl, but make sure you've got the real estate for it because, uh, not as easy as you think finding where to put the bloody things. So no. here's the other thing I'll throw out. We're talking about the Africa Twin, which is a CRF, you know, uh, uh, CRF, you know, 1000. Yeah. It's a big dirt bike. You know, when, when you're riding dirt, what little I know is you have as little inputs to the front end of the bike as possible. You know, yes. you're really holding it with your pinkies. Your elbows are up, super light grip. Your pinkies operating the throttle. You know, will a steering damper stop the the front wheel of the bike doing from what it wants to naturally do off-road no it won't but it will slow it down now that on a bike of that size it might not be a bad thing you know um agility is not the africa twin strong point it's not an agile bike right yeah it's it's a big heavy i'm going there and that's where i'm going kind of bike it's not oh let's go over there right quick so bludgeoning tool it's a bludgeoning tool so i think if you were to put a steering damper on say a klx 250 i think you may be missing the point because one of the advantages of these very very lightweight bikes and to a certain extent your rally raid even though it's so tall it's a very lightweight agile bike you know, you can fart and change direction with it. <laughs> and that's one of the advantages of the bike. Um, so you don't necessarily want to slow down the steering that much. The Africa Twin, it's so, it is such a bludgeoning device. And, you know, like, same with the Super 10. I think I think he might feel the benefit. I really do. Mm-hmm. But well, I'm not going to get too enthusiastic about it. It'd have to be the lower, lower say, oh, good, Miss Emma says so. And then he's going to look at his bike, and he's going to be like, bloody hell, where am I going to put this thing? Because <laughs> you do need real yeah. estate for it. Right. If yeah. you go for a rotary kind, it's going to sit like a big lump on the top triple tree. But if you go for the, the, um, the hydraulic rod, right. you need quite a lot of space. And maybe do some research online to see if somebody else has done it on that bike before, yeah. too. Yeah. Maybe they found a way. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, bikes used to come standard with steering dampers, but they were the friction kind. Mm-hmm. And you'd always see Triumphs. You'd always see even the old Hondas with a big plastic knob right in the center of the triple yeah. tree. Yep. You'd crank it down. You'd crank it down while you were actually riding. Oh, I'm going on the freeway or the motorway. Crank it down. <laughs> And that was stock on a lot of bikes. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, yes. One last one. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, this one is from Mike, and he says, uh, as always, thanks for a great podcast. One of the things that I appreciate the most about your show is that you manage to connect so many different parts of the motorcycle world. Scooters, racers, cruisers, off-road, touring folks, and everyone else all have a place at the table, and you bring them all together in such a fun, loving community. Well, that's oh, exactly what happened oh. here. You may remember Mike, this n- 
Nice gentleman oh, right here. That and Chris were both stunt misfits on our Debbie Lawler episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I remember them very well. Mike lives in Missouri and Chris lives in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And they connected through us and managed to meet up and do a ride. Nice. That's, yeah, that's cool. Great. Isn't that cool? Yeah, right on. Very very Lambert's, Lambert's Cafe. That Yeah, <laughs> that Lambert's true? Cafe, where they throw rolls at you. Do you know about this? The See, apparently you go to www.throwedrolls.com. <laughs> yeah, it's a place where you just you sit there and eat, and then people throw rolls at your head. Food fight. I know. I love that. I want people to throw rolls at my head. I know Liza's. If they're going to throw food at you, Liza is in. (laughs) You're like, what is dessert? What does that make you ask? Exactly. Well, I think that's all we have time for. We have so many more emails. So big thanks to everyone who sends them in. Sorry we don't always get time. Um, We'll try and catch up next week. Um, And also, you know, as usual, big thanks to our Patreon uh, supporters and listeners everywhere. I mentioned that I have some things I'm working on. Going to have some some nice gifts for everyone coming soon. Um, I'll make it the official announcement when it's here, but I'm excited. It's coming soon. Um, but uh, and thanks you to John for being a stunt misfit, filling in for for Rick who had bad internet. Oh, you know, I am really surprised, Liza, that this would have been your opportunity to say unspeakably cruel things about the Harley Davidson riding community. And you didn't. (laughs) So I'm actually quite proud of you. No, just the custom community. I see. (laughs) Okay. And the chopper community. Yeah, the chopper community. (laughs) Exactly. Well, hey, right quick before you forget, I have to give a shout out. Uh, Yeah. Two weeks ago when I was out in the desert. I'm packing up. No one's around. I hear a Harley noise. All of a sudden, a big revving. I look behind me in the desert. There's this guy with a Harley f- over in the sand. Big <laughs> rack, you know, big, uh, all the camping stuff on the sissy bar, et cetera. Standing there looking at it. So I go down. Was it, was it Danger and- Dan? <laughs> no, but this guy would roll hard with Danger Dan. And I want to say yeah. his name was Caden. If he's listening, I apologize for forgetting your name. I kind of think I told you I was going to, but um. Yeah, cool kid. He'd been writing from Massachusetts. He started in December. Whoa. Dude, and he had just come through some gnarly weather, I think John experienced in Utah from the mountains in like eastern uh, California, maybe Arizona. And this, so it helped him get his bike up, you know, big, big, huge U-turn in the sand. And he had a good, uh, he was being real good about it. But man, he had been riding hard. And he looked like he just wanted to roll up in a piece of plastic and go to sleep. Um, but more power to him, <laughs> young man riding all the way from Massachusetts and ends awesome. up in the middle of the desert. It was oh, great. brilliant. Shout out to him. Yeah. Like the kind of things only a young, a young person can do. Oh, it's a young man's game. It is for sure. And shout out to Cleveland Moto Podcast. Uh, yes. John, you said the, the episode that I'm on just came out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so go listen to that. Week, mid, midweek Who are those guys? Yeah. A bunch of wankers. Yeah, a bunch of bloody wankers. They really are. <laughs> Don't dear, you know? Dear, dear. <laughs> you know uh, so, yeah. With their Molo Guzzies and their SSR 125s. God, <laughs> me. God so, um, me. Thank you for listening. Send us those emails. Tell us about your, you know, tricks for rest, restoring and, and fighting Russ. Um, ask us your questions. Keep them coming. 
Also, uh, keep uh, if you have not yet, please go on to uh, Apple Music now, it's called, and, and leave a review. It really helps people discover us. And, uh, and Is that where I can find our reviews? Uh, yeah. Apple Music now. Yes. Uh, y- yeah, well, it was iTunes. You might still have iTunes. And uh, don't forget to go over to our YouTube channel where I've been dropping videos uh, uh recycle santa cruz on youtube and then lastly jim have you been putting anything on our instagram oh no <laughs> nothing there nothing you can go new. to mine and see my shit <laughs> nothing no. new I nothing new. Someone bandwidth. Yeah, yeah, nothing new it's all but right if john wants to take it over he can it's all right so i think on that note it's time to say thank you to everyone um but we are ready to get out of here this is Liza. Bagel. Emma Darling. John the slightly stumpy stunt misfit. Stumpy John. Make <laughs> <laughs> a gym, son. And we are out of here. Cool. 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 cool.